Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. Before I introduce today's episode, I wanted to give you all a heads up on Chris's latest project. Now, Chris is not just my Back from the Abyss co-conspirator. He's also a musician and songwriter, and his current musical project is called Who's Larry? That's spelled W-H-O-O-Z. During the pandemic, Chris wrote a song called Have My Heart, a song about craving those personal connections that were all put on hold. He calls it a love song to love. So I hope you all check it out. The Spotify link will be in the show notes. So we're now about six weeks out from a pretty momentous occasion here in Colorado, the statewide passage of Proposition 122, the Natural Medicines Health Act. Colorado voted by a tally of 53 to 47% to approve both the decriminalization of psilocybin, DMT, ibogaine, and mescaline, and the medicalization of psilocybin with the possibility of a medicalization pathway for the others in 2026. This is a landmark, tipping point kind of social change, and one that I think triggers a huge number of hopes, concerns, and lots and lots and lots of questions. As I pondered who would be best to help me explore this new landscape, I quickly decided that it had to be Shannon Hughes. She's a CSU professor of social work who specializes in issues of drugs, medications, and society. She's also a co-founder of the NOAC Society, which is Colorado's preeminent force for psychedelic education and community. And she also has a private practice here in Fort Collins focused on coaching psychedelic integration and psycho-spiritual depth work. I'm really excited for you to hear this conversation with Shannon. I think we come at Prop 122 from quite different yet complementary perspectives, and I learned a lot from this, and I think you will too. You'll hear both of us occasionally refer to DORA. This is Colorado's Department of Regulatory Agencies. They license medical and therapy professionals, and they also will be the ones managing the new psilocybin medicalization pathway. Shannon and I are here to discuss the recent passage of 122, the psilocybin bill uh, statute. And um, this is something that for years and years, I just wondered if it would ever happen. And it seemed like almost in this way of Malcolm Gladwell talks about the tipping point, like there's no way it's going to happen. No way, no way, no way, no way. Maybe, maybe, boom. You know, so many, so much social change happens like that. So... um, Here we are about three weeks after the election, and Shannon, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's exciting times. Yeah, it's really exciting times. Let's start with the exploration of one of two features of 122. So the first is the decriminalization. And even a lot of people I know who voted for 122 and are excited about it are confused about decriminalization and what exactly that means in Colorado. So I wonder if you might... Give us a summary of your best understanding of what 122 does in terms of psilocybin decriminalization. Sure. Yeah. And psilocybin decriminalization and the natural medicine decriminalization wasn't the primary component of 122, right? It's the regulated access model. And decriminalization was shaped kind of after the fact with community input because it was important to community members, to grassroots community who's been doing psychedelic advocacy in Colorado for a long time. And they really pushed for like, we need decrim as a sort of baseline here. And so it was sort of shaped with community input, and it was not intended to be the main component of, of the bill, but it's there. And so what does decrim do? It 
removes state uh, criminal penalties for the possession, use, storing, transporting, purchasing, obtaining, ingesting, growing, and cultivating natural medicines. So it's not just psilocybin. It includes psilocybin. It includes um, ibogaine, DMT, and mescaline, but not mescaline from peyote. Um, and those are included now. Now. Like it, when the medicalization that we'll get to in a few minutes, mm-hmm. those natural medicines could be added in a few years. Yes. But the decrim is for all those substances. As soon as the governor signs it in the coming weeks, it is will be effective immediately for all of those substances grouped as natural medicines under this proposition. They will be immediately decriminalized under state law. So it just removes um, yeah, criminal penalties under state law. Obviously, it's still these still are controlled substances under federal law. So we have that sort of tension, like we did in early cannabis days, um, when states, state by state, they were medicalizing and legalizing and decriminalizing and still at the federal level, the DEA, in some cases, were kind of kept a close eye on things and uh, decided when they wanted to intervene. Mm-hmm. So there's still that. Um, but under Proposition 122, uh, growing and cultivating psilocybin, as long as it's in your private residence, as long as it's in your uh, private residence, uh, non-commercially, that is decriminalized. Um, so it goes beyond personal use. So when Denver decriminalized mushrooms in 2019, um, it was just personal possession. And so this is even, this decriminalization in Prop 122 goes beyond possession to transporting it, to sharing it to growing it in your own home. So it's a bit more expansive uh, decriminalization measure. There are no possession limits, though. So one of um, some of the, uh, I guess, critics of um, how this decrim uh, provision was written, because there's no possession limit. So it still could be that, um, you know, case law uh, determines sort of sort of modifies the this decrim component or the legislature could come in and amend it, amend it if they wanted to. Um, but how it's written, it says personal use means the amount um, necessary to share natural medicines with other persons. So the amount necessary to share. <laughs> big. <laughs> Quite <At> big. <laughs> so there could be still some... Um, you know, some uh, judicial or legislative follow-up to this uh, to put some more parameters around it. We'll see. But I think that, you know, in theory, decriminalization kind of, it, it might open up some additional pathways to access outside of the regulated regulated sort of healing center, center model that um, we'll be moving into. And so the idea is that, okay, so you can use it, you can adjust it, you can possess it, you can share it, you can offer support services around it. So you can offer spiritual services, you can offer um, what this says here, counseling, spiritual guidance, beneficial community-based use and healing, supported use or related services. That is all in the personal use provision. And so the idea is that if you're like an so-called underground practitioner or you're a a legacy holder and you're doing this work kind of in the underground space currently, maybe it provides, this decriminalization provides like some sort of blanket of safety around what you're doing as long as you're not um, being compensated for psilocybin mushrooms themselves, as long as you're not selling them, you're not marketing and advertising that you're um, uh, doing mushrooms or selling mushrooms, um, but you can offer those services around it under decriminalization. So it kind of starts to bring the underground to 
the above ground, but in this sort of vague, ambiguous way, and we're not quite sure mm-hmm. how it's going to be received. And what about licensed therapists? Let's say now, not the medicalization, we'll get to that, but could licensed therapists now work with people who, say, grow or obtain their own psilocybin and then do work with them, but the therapist is not providing it? Well, Craig, I'm not an attorney, so this is not legal advice. I've talked to attorneys. And I think that's kind of the intention is like, stay quiet about it. Don't make a big deal about it. Don't advertise, you know, don't, don't put it on social media and start branding yourself as the, you know, the mushroom, just like stay quiet about it um, and do your thing. And that's sort of the impression that I've gotten from folks that I've spoken to who are quite involved uh, close to the campaign or, or various attorneys. And they're like, okay, you know, we're not quite sure how this is going to be interpreted. Nobody wants to be the example where case law gets set to say, oh, well, here's the limits. <laughs> um, and so be quiet about it. But I mean, in theory, in theory, yes, you can provide support services around somebody else's personal use of psilocybin, as long as you, you can also share and gift psilocybin. You cannot sell psilocybin. Mm-hmm. So how that might be interpreted if somebody just gets too confident and puts it out there in, you know, too big of a way or starts blurring those lines between what exactly are you being compensated for? Is it the psilocybin or is it the support service? And how are you advertising it? You know, there's some careful lines to walk until um, we find out if the judicial system or legislative system wants to, you know, uh, bring a bit of a heavier hand uh, Mm -hmm. to this provision. Yeah, my sense of when I read through the statute was that 122 is sort of like a framed out house. So, but everything, you know, the everything else is not that yet there. The floors, the appliances, the windows, the roof, like the, the basic s- structure of it's there. Yes. But there's so much yet to be determined. Yes. So, you know, walk delicately. Don't be overconfident. <laughs> It's still illegal at the federal level. Like it's, you know, it's, it's, it's early and it's kind of too soon to say. So, you know, just be in integrity and be ethical. And certainly, uh, you know, if you're operating under the decrim provision, um, you know, it's, it's just, you know, a few bullet points, read it and make sure you're really like align with it. Talk to an attorney. I mean, it's all new territory that we're all kind of figuring out as we go. And there is not really a precedent here in Colorado for how this is going to be interpreted and how it's going to be implemented. What excites you most about 122 and in terms of the decriminalization and also maybe what concerns you? And then I'll weigh in on that as well. But why don't you go first? I mean, what excites me, I was really glad to see decriminalization and a more expansive decriminalization than we had in the city of Denver um, a few years ago. Because, you know, trying to maintain 
multiple avenues of access feels really important to me and and dismantling the war on drugs. It's not just about getting medicalized access with medicalized gatekeepers um, so that my grandma can do psilocybin, which is what I heard a lot actually in the campaign. And I was like, no, I feel like there's got to be more than that. (laughs) And we have like a whole history to reckon with and we have to dismantle this war on drugs. And, you know, there's just so much more to me. And so I think decriminalization personally is a, a really good foundation to set and that you can build on. So I'm excited to see what else that opens up um, um, for Colorado practitioners because we do have a thriving underground and we do have indigenous indigenous legacy holders who practice and hold ceremony in the space and 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 their voices really haven't been platformed very well in all of this and so I I I hope that decriminalization offers a way that we can kind of protect those practices and and offer multiple paths into this work for both for people who do the work and for people who are journeyers and you know um, looking for um, uh, you know, the possible benefits of psilocybin, whether it's for mental health condition or just psycho-spiritual exploration or just wanting to connect with their, you know, mycelial networks and kin. I don't... (laughs) 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 Yeah, so that's what I'm excited about. And um, I just, I I really believe in the Colorado community. I think we can hold this. I think communities can hold psilocybin as one of the safest substances, psychoactive substances, physically safest that we have just at all. (laughs) (laughs) And I I really believe that communities can hold this. And so the more that we can empower communities and put this in many hands to hold versus concentrating authority, um, I think the better. I'm really excited about all the psychiatric, psychological possibilities. And also, I like this idea of medicalization, at least, or I'm sorry, decrim, as it's written in 122, as being kind of a soft start. Mm. So it's not like you're going to go to dispensaries or um, see huge billboards on I-25 about psilocybin. It will be fairly on the DL for a while. Um, And I think it's going to give us time to sort of figure out what's the best way to integrate this into society, safest way. Um, And I agree with you. I think safety of psilocybin is less the issue. My Probably my biggest concern about psilocybin coming online actually doesn't have to do with psilocybin. It has to do with THC, which I've talked about on the podcast a lot. But this idea that people uh, might, well, people will combine, you know, high doses of psilocybin with high doses of THC and some number of them will flip into psychosis or mania and and some won't come back. And again, not so much because of psilocybin, but because THC is such a exponential modifier, magnifier of tryptamine psychedelics. So I am... That is ironic that our legal substance, cannabis, could make this very, very safe substance more dangerous. Right. And alcohol, too. And alcohol, yeah. So, and that's just true, and that's already true. Mm -hmm. That's already happening. People are already experimenting. And and, and so maybe, maybe with decriminalization and, like, the public messaging campaigns that go along with that, you know, maybe... Maybe there'll be an improvement. I don't know if there's a lot of evidence that, um, you know, psilocybin use is going to sort of skyrocket and we're going to have people all over the streets high on psilocybin or something, as some of the the, um, opponents of the measure were sort of speculating. But uh, maybe in some way there's, you know, better information and there's, you know, we're starting, we'll be able to start creating these cultures of use that are not so underground and not so, you know, 
that, that don't feel so criminal that we can actually, you know, provide information and have conversations and do public messaging about how to be in a, you know, safe use of psilocybin and, and combating the myths and, and um, uh, just starting to create just what, what might be a more empowered relationships with these substances that can be truly transformative and also you know, can cause some real problems when we don't have safe supply and we have really bad information and it's more propaganda than, you know, information and there's no culture of use or community of use that can support it. And all of those things that we're dealing with right now, I feel like we can only, you know, we can only go up from here. I, I would hope when we can actually like bring this out in the light and like dialogue about it and educated people about it. And, you know, I think we can, I, I think we're, I don't have the um I don't have a sense that um this is just going to um you know cause rampant problems that aren't already existing in these spaces. No, I agree. Yeah. I'm also um a little concerned although it's good that people are asking. I've already had a number of patients ask me, can I go off my meds and do psilocybin instead? Instead, which is actually a great question. And um I think there's so many things we need to learn about how psilocybin can fit into psychiatric treatment and go along with certain psychiatric meds. And, you know, the, the short answer to that is we're not sure yet, and it depends on the med. But I know, uh, and also, also already had people calling, ready to do, you know, serious trauma treatment. One, like, I want to see you, Craig, and do this treatment. I said, whoa, hold on. Medical, the formal medicalization is still, you know, year out. So 122, again, had two major uh, aspects, if you will, the decriminalization of natural medicines, and thank you for clarifying that. And then also this path towards medicalization. So I wonder, Shannon, if you might sort of outline what that looks like in 122, um, what we know, what we don't know. Sure. We don't know a lot more than we do know. What we do know is 122 asks Dora, Colorado's Department of Regulatory Agencies that sort of regulates our professions in the state, um, asked Dora to create rules. And so that's really, this is the frame of the house, right? Um, And so Dora has to um, create rules for licensing healing centers and licensing facilitators. And so healing centers are administration sites, like sites that where psilocybin can be administered or where it can be cultivated and grown and facilitators who can sit for administration, help prep people um, and administer psilocybin and do integration. So preparation, integration, preparation, administration, and integration are sort of named in Proposition 122. And then there's, you know, some nice provisions that I think are thoughtful that I I think were added to 122 as a response to what we were seeing in Oregon happen, um, happening and wanting to kind of make 122 an improvement over Oregon, which I think it is. And so really it instructs, it creates a, 122 creates an advisory board, a natural medicine advisory board through the governor's office composed of 15 people. And those 15 people 
are the people who actually write the recommended rules for licensing healing centers and licensing facilitators. Um, and then you should be on that board. Are you trying to get on the board? <laughs> no, really? <laughs> I, no, I but uh, we're, we're sending delegates. We're, okay. we're, we have, we have, we have a, a number of people who are, are trying to get on that board. So this advisory panel then makes recommendations to Dora, Dora enacts it or not, or modifies it or whatever. Um, and then this advisory board also is um, going to make a recommendation in 2026 if we should add the other natural medicines, um, DMT, Ibogaine, uh, mescaline, but not from peyote, to uh, this regulated access model. And so some of the other provisions that are written in it, so the Prop 122 says, okay, so DORA needs to make rules for licensing, um, but the licensing um, requirements need to not impose too steep a obstacle to entry into it. So you should have um, somehow incentivize um, BIPOC uh, uh, community members and veterans and people from low-income communities. They should be incentivized somehow to be able to access, you know, a f- facilitator's license, for example. Um, and they don't have to be licensed therapists. And they don't have to be licensed therapists. Which is pr- a pretty radical step. It I is a pretty, think. yeah. No requirement of having a professional license and also protection for those with professional licenses. Um, it says that the training requirements for facilitators should be tiered training requirements so that depending on, you know, the, so if you're like treating mental health conditions with psilocybin, you would need like a higher level of training and certification than if you're, you know, holding uh, just psycho-spiritual exploration among people who have no mental health condition, a lower level of training and certification required. So those kinds of um, provisions are written into Prop 22, but it's really just instructing Dora saying, okay, you need to like come up with all these rules and these rules must include, you know, protection for licenses and tiered education and sliding scale fees for uh, uh, healing center licenses based off of their annual revenue, things like that. So in some respects, you know, I, I think there are some thoughtful touches put into Prop 120, 122 to try to make it more accessible and lower the barriers to entry. But again, it's like a, a lot still to mm-hmm. determine, and Dora can kind of take it or leave it. Yeah, much like the decriminalization wording is broad and will need to be interpreted over time, it sounds like this was purposefully broad, it's saying, you know, we need, uh, Dora needs to appoint a commission, or I guess the governor's going to appoint the commission of 15 people who are going to make these rules, but um, most of the rules still need to be established. Yes, most of the rules still need to be established. Um, you know, the healing centers in Prop 122, it does say um, healing centers can um, share space with healthcare facilities. So the intention is that if you have a clinic or a hospital or a hospice or, you know, what long-term care center, that um, you could also sort of share that space with the licensed healing center for psilocybin services. So it's intentionally trying to integrate it into um, more mainstream um, like clinical settings, as well as um, provisions for conducting administration sessions outside of healing centers, like at private residences. So if you have a terminal illness and you're you know, at at-home hospice care, and the idea is that you would be able to have like at-home administration. You wouldn't have to leave your house and come to a healing center. So there's provisions for that written into it that, of course, Dora will be ultimately making the rules around, um, you know, what qualifies under what conditions. And, you know, we'll see how micro 
manage they want to be like how heavily they want to regulate it and you know it, i think i think that's the real you know this this advisory board is going to be key the advisory board is really going to be key in making the recommendation so it's like i'm hoping that the advisory board is made of pe- of people who understand this medicine who have worked with this medicine who um are inclusive of and representative of the community of Colorado practitioners and is in dialogue with our communities versus people who really just don't understand the nuances of psychedelic work, who come from maybe other sort of public health backgrounds, who really don't know what this is about. And, um, or maybe they have, you know, other financial interests and, um, they're just going to kind of make these rules in a certain way. Um, but I'm hoping this advisory board is going to kind of try to have a light touch and, Mm -hmm. You know, my preference would be for like decriminalization, light regulation, and then we can add regulation as needed. But if you start with a really heavy hand and it's really highly regulated, it's hard to kind of like go back from that. And it could easily just suck the spirit out of this medicine, all the magic out of it. Yeah. I mean, from what you said a few minutes ago, when you talked about the consulting a lawyer, comment, um, it sounds like there will be some number of existing underground people and licensed people now who will just start working with psilocybin and other natural medicines because they're decriminalized. Yeah. Especially if they're, although it's interesting, even if the therapist or guide provided it, that's not selling it. Right. You can gift it. You could share it. You can instruct people on how to grow it themselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's definitely happening. And we're getting calls just like you're getting calls. We're getting calls. Oh, my gosh. In the days after it passed, we had a surge of calls and email inquiries and website visits. Um, A lot of people from outside of Colorado wanting to come visit. So there's, you know, it's going to be really interesting. And there's going to be a lot of people who are just wanting to jump in the space because it's an opportunity. Um, And there'll be charlatans and, you know, as much as, you know, psilocybin dissolves ego, it also expands egos (laughs) and inflates egos. And so there's like... (laughs) That's the psychedelic narcissism. Yes, there's... Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, and so I don't, I don't know, it's all happening very fast. And I'm, um, I, I, I don't know. Um, on the balance of things, there's going to be a lot of people sort of grabbing for space and wanting to jump into this work and how we hold that as a community and how we hold that as, you know, policymakers. Um, it'll be really interesting. So is your sense that one of the biggest areas of controversy will be more heavy handed regulation versus more kind of laissez faire? Or do you think, and or are there other key issues that are going to be difficult or contentious for this commission to, to hammer out? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think just access and equity. I mean, that's just so of the moment right now, too. And like reckoning with our history of colonialism and extractivism. I mean, there's certainly indigenous opposition to this proposition. Um, And that has to do with, um, you know, uh, some indigenous communities just felt like the proposition didn't do enough around like stewardship and conservation and um, 
um, and, and that this was just sort of another sort of colonialist project to like extract uh, traditions and extract these medicines um, without really understanding the the fullness of their like sacred aspects and really what this medicine is, but just trying to extract it and co-opt it into our white Western system because now it's a drug that white people want to do. And so we're going to do it and make it available and not fully understand the context around it and its traditional uses and our own relationship with indigenous communities who have who are the legacy holders for this medicine and so I think there's a lot packaged in that that's very of this moment beyond just the psychedelic conversation but in so many political spheres um, that will um, you know I think these are important conversations that we can't bypass. Most Americans now favor cannabis legalization across the country, and that wasn't true a decade ago. And so I could see, right, this like sort of critical mass forming where we could be headed in a similar direction where over time, over the next decade, more and more Americans are favoring psilocybin legalization and access. And and maybe that's part of, I like to daydream maybe sometimes that that's part of um, kind of reclaiming our own power over you know, our suffering and our own healing from pharmaceutical companies who have shaped the mental health system and how we use drugs so profoundly over the decades. And maybe there's this movement to kind of like reclaim our relationships to our suffering and our healing into our world and our, to each other. And I like to think that. I don't know how true that is. Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense? No, actually, I'm glad you brought that up. I think that's already happening, even just in the last few weeks or really in the last couple years because people in Colorado have been really interested in psilocybin for a while. I mean, I've had patients regularly for the last two or three years as they're giving me their treatment history. will say, you know, I've been on SSRIs and I did EMDR and I'm growing mushrooms and I microdosed and then I did three grams last week. I mean, all sorts of people that are just already doing this. So I'm actually excited about, um, as you said, this sort of new role of, um, maybe docs and healthcare providers of here we can have this decriminalized plant medicines where the the medical industry won't control them, but we need to understand them and advise. And Because already I'm getting so many questions. You know, can I take psilocybin with a Bilify? Will it augment ketamine? Is it okay with benzos? Yes. Will it replace my effexor? Can I microdose psilocybin as I come off of my SSRIs? So like we get that question yeah. a lot. Yeah. So... I think that's actually a really exciting role for mental health professionals and psychiatrists specifically to help people sort out the the psychopharmacology of that because people are already doing their own, you know, not not just psychospiritual exploration, but trying to treat their depression, PTSD on their own. And so uh, I, I'm actually really looking forward to that, to partnering with people because a number of people have asked me, you know, are you going to start using psilocybin with patients? And uh, I think largely no, and we'll get to that here, I think, in a few minutes, but um, part of that is because I think most of it is going to be DIY. I think it's going to be people doing it themselves. Um, And I think the facilitators and um, 
healing centers licensed by Dora, they're going to be specializing in some of the really complicated trauma cases and people that need more support. But my sense is it's going to be largely DIY because it is safe and it is for most people. And it's, um, I could just, I could see where a lot of us are serving more as advisors, um, but not necessarily, you know, having people come into my office here in Mountain Avenue and taking psilocybin. I, you should be on this advisory board, Craig. Are you putting your name in that? <laughs> I, I thought about it. I hate driving on I-25. And I'm imagining the, <laughs> the meetings are going to be in Denver. I, I just, I-25 scares me so much. I think they're probably all Zoom meetings at okay, this point. Okay, well, yeah. maybe, yeah, maybe I should be on it. And, you know, I guess, can I just say one other thing about this? I don't know if this is national implications, but this is like a cultural implications or something. Because there's like this tension that I see that I just can't quite shake. And the tension is like psilocybin, psilocybin holds this promise to for individual healing, right? For depression and addictions and end of life distress and all of this stuff. But even more beyond our individual healing, there's this promise of psilocybin for like to transform our relationships to each other and to the planet and to like um, really be a disruptive and transformative force like in our world and our culture and our society and our communities. Like there's this spirit of the medicine, if you believe, if you can believe in that there's like a spirit of the, to this medicine that is alive and it's rooted in the earth and it's um, rooted to our relationships to the earth. And so there's like that one side, but then we have this other hand and that, the other hand is the reality that we live in. And the reality we live in is capitalism and competition and scarcity and extraction and histories that we've, we're struggling to reckon with. Um, and this neoliberal self that is hyper individualistic and, ego driven towards personal wealth and happiness and all of this stuff. And so we're trying to incorporate psilocybin into this modern reality. And so it's like, I feel like the spirit of psilocybin is trying to like pull us, our collective conscious towards it. And while we're trying to pull psilocybin into our battered psyches and broken systems, and it's like, okay, will psilocybin transform us or will we like deaden the promise Mm that psilocybin holds for us. I love that. That reminds me, someone told me the other day, they said, uh, I forgot who it was, said the difference between LSD and psilocybin, said psilocybin has, has you know, plant energy and earth energy and connection and um, has a spirit. And LSD is the AI version of psilocybin. <laughs> that, is, that is brilliant. So that made me think ketamine is definitely the AI version of something. I don't, I don't know what. Because <laughs> if there's something that's very AI, that, that would be ketamine. So I, I agree, Shannon. I think, you know, we, as a psychiatrist, I'm most interested, you know, in 122, I think, in terms of the psychological psychiatric suffering, but it could also bring a lot of joy. Yes. And it could also bring a lot of connection and, and just bring people into themselves and into nature. Yeah. So, gosh, if that's the only thing it did. Oh, my gosh. Spectacular. It's spectacular. And so I just keep thinking, like, how do we, how do we integrate that into our clinical systems, our health and mental health systems as they exist, because they just exist as they exist, and we have to start where we are. And so how do we like integrate that in a way that's like really stewarding the promise of psilocybin and not diluting it and not just co-opting it as like another thing that is going to, is just 
like how does a broken system hold something that could be truly transformative? Mm-hmm. So this advisory board's really got some deep work to do. It, yeah, it does. Yeah. But again, I, I like the idea that it's that it's not starting with with kind of the dispensary model. That it's just going to yeah. be so com- commercialized and available, and show your ID and go in the store. I'm, I like that it's going to be a a little more dispersed and kind of organic. I hope so. I mean, there's certainly critics of the proposition that are quite concerned about the corporatization. So I think that's another issue this advisory panel is going to have to grapple with because the language in the proposition um, aims to prevent corporate sort of you know, consolidation of, of, of the psychedelic healing centers. Um, it says that an, inv- an individual may not have a financial interest in more than five healing centers. However, there could always be loopholes. It, it doesn't define who an individual is. Is that a corporation? Like what, you know, how we, corporations are people too. Like we don't know <laughs> what kind of loopholes that, that might introduce. And then you think about cannabis and like what one of a lot went wrong with cannabis, but one of it is like, look at who owns the licenses for cannabis dispensaries and cannabis, you know, cultivation and look who's sitting in jail. And there's not, it's not been applied equitably and we still have not reckoned with the wrongs and the harms we've done. It's just sort of like starting from scratch from where we are. And then like the, and, and there's just like this huge outpouring of investment money right now, just sort of lining up to get into the psilocybin space. We've already been contacted by folks in Southern Colorado who have investors line up and they want to be a major grow operation for all these healing centers. And I'm like, yeah, this is exactly what I was afraid of. It's already happening. And the governor have governor hasn't even signed this into law. So, I mean, I think trying, like, really working within that decrim provision, um, you know, there's also, you know, while there's investors lined up, like, waiting to get into this space, there's also, you know, grow co-ops, and there's also, you know, these community healing groups who are kind of, you know, clandestinely, like, you know, working in this space right now, but I think might have some room to come a little bit more into the light and kind of balance some of this, like, you know, investment money that wants to just pour in um, with, you know, the spirit of the medicine and, and being connected in community and ceremony and all of all of that work. I will also mention mention quickly that um, licensing fees in Oregon. You know, they're almost they're almost ready to adopt officially their rules. And um, do you know what the licensing fees in Oregon are, mm-hmm. Craig? I'm just just ten thousand dollars annually. For a practitioner? For a service center or a lab or a manufacturer, and $2,000 annually for a facilitator. Wow. And if you're a nonprofit, you can get a discount. If you're, you know, low income, you can get a So there's ways to get discounts. But I was astonished. Even just $2,000 for a facilitator. So if you're like a service center, you've got your $10,000 annually and say you have, you know, four facilitators that work in your center. So that's another 2000 per person. I mean, what, how much do you pay? No, let me, let me say that is so, (laughs) that number is so crazy. Actually, I've I've been thinking of this number. So every two years, um, physicians who want a DEA number have to pay for their DEA license for two years. I believe it's $700. So this allows you to prescribe Oxycontin and Adderall and Xanax and, you know, all sorts of things 
for maybe it's 800 but every time I, I pay that every two years i think this is terrible this is so the dea charges so much but you're saying in oregon it's two thousand dollars for an individual facilitator and you're not even treating mental health conditions oh man yeah yeah so you know it's nice that we have that example in colorado now and we can i hope craig that you in this advisory board that you're on <laughs> can really be thoughtful and learn so i just need to text jared and say hey i'm your man Put yes. me on it. Okay. there's an application through the governor's office um that you submit for any board or commission and then i think we don't know how long the application will be open it's probably through the end of the year and then by end of january the governor will make announce the appointments and i don't know how those soft channels of influence work um but we certainly have a good number of people that I know who have submitted their names. So we're hopeful and it's going to be key. But t- I was just sick to my stomach when I saw those numbers in Oregon. Yeah. I'm wondering if the DEA will weigh in with the docs in Colorado who get a DOR approved license because, you know, it's different with, you know, if you're recommending or, I mean, um, cannabis to a patient or even giving, you know, getting them a medical card, you're not necessarily, you know, providing it, doing it with them, you know, you're more saying, hey, do this on your own, because this helps your one of your conditions. But, you know, if there, when there are MDs, DOs who are getting these licenses, I mean, the DEA could easily find out who those people are and take away your, your DEA license, which would be crippling. I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful that the DEA will realize that this is a very, this isn't even a small fish. This is no fish. Yeah. You know, no compared no to fish like, here. I mean, compared to like fentanyl <laughs> and, you know, heroin and, you know, even Adderall. Like Adderall is 10 million times bigger problem than psilocybin. But also, I don't know. I mean, the DEA doesn't have like a history of like rational sort of like logic around like how they enforce drugs policy and drug controls mm-hmm. in this country. And so I wouldn't count on them to think about this and, you know, yeah, from a rationalist sort of lens. Um, and, you know, some of the, many the opponents of 122 uh, were like, we already have this opioid crisis and now we're just going to add more drugs to it. And it's like, there's no distinguishing between fentanyl and, you know, these other drugs and, and psilocybin. Like they're, they're just drugs. They're all drugs. They're all the same. Let's explore um, what kinds of psychological and psychiatric suffering might most be helped by psilocybin. I know some of this is speculative. Some that we actually we have some studies. There's some really interesting research that's been done in recent years, and this might be a little bit more in my ballpark. But I know you, know, you too um, work in the therapy realm, and you're a social work professor, and so I think you know you are also I know keenly interested in mm-hmm. in you know the kind of the mental health aspects of of decrim. What would what are you most hopeful might be addressed or improved with psilocybin, or you know what sort of deficits in mental health treatment are you thinking that you know or, yeah. or other natural medicines might step in and address? You know, I think some of the deficits in our mental health system are, you know, things that it's not designed to really treat or support, and that's like connection 
and spiritual connection and connection just to something within ourselves or outside of ourselves. And, you know, I, I think the mental health system has tried to, you know, adopting some like vocational rehab and <laughs> peer support or, you know, there's been some efforts like, okay, now people need connection. And, you know, how do we, how do we put that in their treatment plan? I don't think it's been hugely successful. Um, and, and so I, I'm kind of excited about that. You know, you have depression and anxiety, like OCD. Oh my gosh, I know several people have had really good luck with uh, OCD and, and psilocybin. Um, addictions, relationship problems, um, spiritual disconnection, life meaning. Mm. No big whoop. Just life meaning, that's all. <laughs> just meaning. Just, just you know, <laughs> the meaning of all as things. As opposed to meaninglessness. <laughs> existential despair <laughs> and i think like i don't know i i'm i'm not super tied to dsm diagnoses as like a valid i i think for the most part like scientifically um i think there's clinical utility for sure and the dsm but i don't i don't i stick too closely to to, to, to those labels and so i think psilocybin stuckness disconnection, the ability to make new choices in life or just to, to align with new choices in life that gets you closer to what you truly want your life to be. I don't know that there's a diagnosis for that. that, that connects no, to. I, I know exactly what you mean. And I agree with you so much of the DSM is, is a complete mess. Yeah. The way I think about that question, um, one way to think about it is sort of psychospiritual aspects of psilocybin versus kind of psychopharmacological. Yeah. So, you know, with the, on the psychopharmacological meaning, you know, psilocybin hitting the 2A receptor, I'm super excited about OCD. And I'm glad mm -hmm. you mentioned that. There are some small studies, open-label study, studies of people with severe treatment-resistant OCD going into remission for many months with one high-dose treatment, which yeah. is phenomenal. Because, you know, there are people who respond to high-dose SSRIs and, and exposure and response prevention and do well, but there is a significant percentage of people with treatment-resistant OCD who don't really respond to anything. Yeah. And the thought that, you know, we have uh, something coming online that could help them, I'm just thrilled about that. Yeah. yeah. I'm also really interested, you know, depression is such a um, complicated syndrome and, you know, not a diagnosis per se. But, you know, we hear all sorts of descriptions of people who have their depression alleviated with psilocybin. Now, I think what will be really interesting to sort out is how much of that is existential depression, grief-driven depression, trauma-driven depression, bipolar-driven depression. Yeah. So I think there's so much interesting, uh, so many interesting questions to ask and to look at, you know, where psilocybin fits in. Because, and, you know, depression is clearly has psychopharmacological, if you will, brain elements, and has mind elements, kind of psychospiritual. So psilocybin kind of bridges both of those. Yeah, kind of sorting that out. I'm also interested just thinking about like what questions remain or like understanding the mystical type experience, mystical type experience, and it's like relative importance as a mechanism for change. It's really interesting to see that in the scientific literature among okay, yeah, we're hitting these receptor sites and the functional network connectivity and all these neurobiological and the mystical type experience. And it's like to see that like on the same, there's like a flow chart of like sort of the proposed causal mechanisms of psilocybin and one of one of the one of these studies that I was looking at recently. And the mystical, it's just sort of there. 
alongside on the same line with all the neurobiological effects of psilocybin as one of the acute effects that is in this proposed causal model. And it's like, okay, that's interesting. Like there's this acknowledgement in the literature of like the importance, like the science and the spirituality coming together and the acknowledgement that there's something in this mystical experience. Like, yes, everything is happening in the brain. It's neuroplasticity. It's all of this. And there's this mystical experience that seems really important and we don't quite understand it and we, we've got to like figure this out. And and it's interesting because typically our like research methods and like sort of positivist scientific research is very reductive and psilocybin is like holistic and encompassing and it's meaning making and it's mystical. And so I'm kind of curious how we might, you know, approach our, our research methods to follow the lead of psilocybin for what mm. it is. Yeah, I love that. To, um, things I've been thinking a lot about how psilocybin relates to ketamine. The first is you know, ketamine is such a powerful uh, med for treatment-resistant depression. And so one question is, I'm wondering if psilocybin treatments, maybe DIY at home, are going to allow people to maybe do maintenance ketamine less frequently because now people with severe treatment-resistant depression, you know, kind of endogenous bipolar spectrum depression, they're often doing ketamine IV or IM every four or five, six weeks, um, which is very effective, but gets expensive and time consuming. And, you know, is it possible that they could do at-home psilocybin and that would buy them more time between ketamine treatments? I'm super interested in that question. And the other thing, and you and I just talked about this before we started recording, I'm wondering if ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, which I think of primarily as sort of a trauma realm, meaning lower dose uh, ketamine to help with somatic and psychotherapy. I wonder if psilocybin is going to replace a lot of that because my sense is that psilocybin is a better trauma catalyst. I think it's more connected. As you said, I think it's warmer. I think it has more of a, a kinder connected spirit. Whereas I think ketamine is, yeah, is kind of the AI version of some strange <laughs> computer chip uh, underground cyborg magma chamber <laughs> something i don't know what it is weird weird molecule um, there are different landscapes ketamine and psilocybin they take you to different places you know ketamine i feel like is that like zoom out thirty thousand foot perspective of the tapestry of your life and um you know some fresh insight can come in and 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 psilocybin it like takes you deep into the earth into the mycelial network and it's really good for grief work and it's really good for just and, and they're just different i think they're i think i I, it, it's interesting because like in real world world practice, we'll be able to answer these questions. We'll be able to say, okay, what if you follow this with this? And what if you, you know, try to, you know, whatever in between your psilocybin sessions, you do a ketamine booster. And like, we don't do that in the clinical trials because mm-hmm. of just the nature of, of how we, of, of science. Um, and so there'll be so many interesting questions and we are all just like right on the leading edge of like... <laughs> innovating in this space and it's going to be exciting it's also going to be you know people are going to be harmed like there's going to be mistakes all of that's going to exist i don't i i personally think that ketamine is a useful tool in its own right 
and will continue to have its place. And interestingly, so one of the studies that we did at C- that we haven't published yet that we'll be publishing from CSU and a partnership with NOAC Society um, are these qualitative interviews with underground psilocybin practitioners. And so we were asking them about how they practice and how they use psilocybin and they don't have the constraints of being in a clinical study. They're underground. So, you know, if you're going to use psilocybin, you know, they kind of have access to all of the different medicines. And one of the things that we heard from, um, a a number of, of practitioners, I think we interviewed 18 total here working in Colorado, um, from a number of them, they, um, they don't even just start, they don't even start with psilocybin. Even if people, many people will come to them, I want to do a high dose psilocybin session. Um, most of the, many of the underground practitioners said, yeah, but you know, we, we kind of have to assess the readiness. Are they ready for that space? And so they'll, a lot of people reported that they start with ketamine mm-hmm. or they start with microdosing psilocybin to start building a relationship with it and building a relationship with the guide. And then, you know, when there's a sense of readiness, they'll go into like a high dose psilocybin journey. But ketamine was positioned as a good opener as a like toe in the water into the sort of psychedelic landscape and starting to sort of break down some of these stuck storied sort of narratives that we hold and and start to kind of like break through and you know ready someone to really engage a high dose deep psilocybin experience Mm -hmm. that was interesting yeah that's really interesting actually i think it just came to me another obvious group of people who will now and in the future, we'll stick to ketamine over psilocybin. Um, so people on the whole group of atypical antipsychotics, like mm. you know, a lot of psych meds block the two, the serotonin two A receptor, which is where psilocybin binds and does at least part of its thing. You and can so, kind of start working with it because you don't have to come off your meds. Right, ketamine has very few medication interactions. Yeah, psilocybin is. It's short lasting. It's a little toe in the water. It's pretty gentle. I mean, at least how we use ketamine in our office, like lower dose. It's kind of gentle it holds you it's not panicky and scary um where psilocybin you know that come on can be really intense and you're like oh shit where, what am I? <laughs> and, and so i think there's a lot of advantages to, to ketamine that will kind of keep it around in the arsenal mm-hmm. yeah how interesting and here in a couple of years you know we'll be meeting with people and thinking like hmm are you an MDMA kind of person? Are you a, a cannabis assistant there? Are you a ketamine? Are you a psilocybin person? Right. I mean, really, that's it's we're, true. We're, getting, we're almost there. Yeah. We are almost there. And there's already camps because there's some people who are like, no, I only do plant medicines. I don't do anything synthetic. And there's there's all, there's there's already sort of these preferences uh, happening, especially in the underground space where people are just using all of these medicines and sort of deciding what landscape they want to work in and like how it's it's just sort of developing their own relationships with each of them. I'm an MDMA person. Mm. Um, I feel like that's, you know, you, and I think that's, that's another thing with training and training and all these uh, licensing requirements is, you know, in the pro prohibition space that we're currently in, in the DIY space in the underground guide space the there's kind of an expectation that you're called to work in this realm you're called to work with this medicine um that you have a personal relationship with this that you've used it that you really get the landscape that you've done your work with this and i think that's kind of an advantage of prohibition in a weird terrible way and as it becomes more accessible and medicalized and integrated into sort of mainstream systems it's is there still an expectation of being called to it as a practitioner? Is there still an expectation of having a personal relationship with it, that you've used it, that you understand it? 
I mean, what that's that's just a that's an interesting question. Mm-hmm. I don't think we can ask people in regular health care facilities giving someone psilocybin that they've done it. But I But they better have. <laughs> I would ask as a patient. <laughs> that would be one of my questions. Is this right for me? Well, tell me about your own relationship. Have you done this? Like, what does this mean for you as a practitioner? I that's a really important part of the space as it currently exists in the community. And be like having a backcountry ski guide who who doesn't really know how to ski, doesn't know how to work the avalanche beacon. Yeah. Has has never actually dug an avalanche. A lifeguard who's never been in the deep end of the pool or yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know how that's going to shape things. Mm hmm. How do you see things, you know, I alluded to this a few months, minutes ago about this kind of how, how much um, we're going to see natural medicines as kind of a DIY at home thing that people are doing, you know, with trusted friends and, um, and maybe their therapists who are not DORA licensed versus the more formalized medicalized path where people are going to a, you know, a Colorado approved treatment center or facilitator yeah, I mean, I think we'll see both, and I mean, having options is great because some people, some people just want to go to their doctor's office and they feel safe with going into that clinical setting. And it's this is not a it's not about spirituality. We have people coming into our you know for ketamine sessions, and they're like, "This isn't spiritual. I don't need any ceremony. There's no woo here. Like, this is a treatment. This is a medical treatment for my condition, <laughs> and that's that's what they want to see it as. That's their relationship with it. That's what they want to be. Tra- they want to walk into their doctor's office, and they feel safe there, and it's like within their little comfort zone. And so, just give me the treatment. Maybe that's okay. That's not how I would operate if I were to have a healing center. <laughs> you know, I might have a little different orientation to the work. But people having options. You know, that's. Maybe my grandma would, you know, facing end of life, like she wouldn't step into somebody's yurt. And <laughs> somebody's yurt. <laughs> but she would go to her physician, and her physician said, Hey, go to this clinic. She and, can come know, see me. She... <laughs> I'll see her. <laughs> and so having those options, I think, is it's, it's, it's great. And I mean, it kind of begs the question of like, okay, what are we really, what is psilocybin? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> what is this? How does this medicine work? And how do we hold it? And, is it sacred? Is there is ceremony and ritual important to it? Like, what is this mystical experience? How does it fit in a clinical setting? I think there's so many questions that that sort of style and approach brings up. But yeah, no, I think I think they're both going to be thriving spaces. Mm-hmm. Is there's like clientele for all of it? Yeah, I think you know the short answer to is it this? Is it this? Is it this? It's it's kind of all of the above. You know, I I, I agree I, with you. I hope it is used more in a thoughtful sort of mindful just culturally sensitive connecting way. Mm-hmm. But then I'm also reminded of Paul Stamets story of, yeah. of taking a whole ton of mushrooms and climbing up a tree in a storm and basically scared out of his mind and just basically having a horrible trip, no preparation or integration. And he inadvertently healed his stutter from kind of a heroic dose clutching a tree. So I think it's kind of like we see, you know, in the, in the OCD literature that psilocybin seems to, and some of the other plant medicines have some 
profound brain benefits in and of themselves. And then they have, you know, love, as you said earlier in, in the show, that you're most interested and hopeful about connection. Mm-hmm. You know, if I, if I had to see, I'd say the one thing that's just been, I've been so struck by through COVID and the kind of this post-COVID time in my patients is so much loneliness and so much disconnection. So many people who, I mean, we live in Colorado. We live in one of the most beautiful places. So many people I work with don't go outside. Yeah. They, so many people I work with have never been on, you know, in Horsetooth Mountain Park or Lori or in Market. They're inside on their screens. They're so disconnected from nature and trees and the sun. And gosh, if some percentage of those people could get connected with themselves or with the earth or something, something, get connected with something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think so too. You know, I think there's going to be precautions and but whether the DIY space or the medicalized space, I think there's precautions and, you know, like in the DIY space, it's know your mushroom guide and look out for like inflated egos and charlatans. And, um, you know, there's certainly been plenty of exposés in, in the last couple of years about just abuses of power in psychedelic spaces and sexual abuses in psychedelic spaces. And, you know, so I think if you're in the DIY space, um, you know, are you as a practitioner being connected to a community? I think what is one of the promises of decriminalization of personal use and Prop 122 is even if you're not a licensed facilita- facilitator working in the licensed healing center and you're kind of more working in this decriminalized space, um, the opportunity to connect to a community of practitioners where right now it's very isolating because of prohibition and criminal risk of putting yourself out there as a practitioner. So you're more isolated and it's just more possible for you to kind of fall into those traps of the ego and power abuses when you're not held accountable in a community of learners and a community of practitioners who are sharing knowledge and sharing information and sharing practices and, and, and keeping each other in check. And so I'm hopeful that decrim um, will allow that to emerge in the DIY space. And so, yeah, you know, practitioners who, you know, if you're somebody looking for a a guide in in that space, it's like checking the ego. I think there's just like, we culturally, we just do not do well with power. We don't have good relationships with power. And so, um, you know, any, any guide or facilitator who thinks that somehow it's about them or like they have the answers and, you know, you're broken or you're blocked or you need to surrender more. And it's always like, do more drugs and you need more sessions. (laughs) There's like some certain red flags that I I hope that we can, um, you know, uh, have some public messaging around and keep people like informed and looking for these things so that they're, you know, avoiding potential harms. And hopefully 122 is going to bring this out of the dark into light. Right. Um, because before people are you know, trying to find an uh, ethical, competent underground person and uh, it's just everything's it's all... It's hard. There's no... I mean, there are websites, I guess, but it's just like there, you can't... And, and, and within a, a, a climate of prohibition, it's just too risky to put yourself out there. And it, yeah, we just... I, more than anything, we were hearing from the um, underground psilocybin practitioner research we were doing, they were just like we need a community of learners and a community of accountability. We need communities of practitioners to be able to hold this. You can't just be isolated in your yurt in the mountains and people come to you to do mushrooms. It's just too many, too, too many risks there. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that'll kind of bring that a little bit to light, but then also in the clinical space, like 
you know, have you ever done this doc? And what's your view on what this medicine is and what this work is really about? And, you know, is that a match for me? And uh, so I think in both spaces, there's things that are going to be, you know, advantages and disadvantages. And there's certainly going to be people um, flooding all all sort of points of access into psilocybin work, I think will just be flooded with people who are eager and ready and suffering a lot and for a long time and just wanting relief from whatever space they can get it in. Any final thoughts you know, as we wrap up here? I just, you know, we have an opportunity. There's so much to be determined. There's just so much. Over the next 15 months are just key. And, you know, our nonprofit, No Act Society, will be kind of in the conversation as much as we can and supporting the community conversations and connecting people and trying to be a voice. But, um, you know, if the advisory board is put together well and well represented in the governor's office. I think we have a really good opportunity to do something transformative uh, with equity and inclusion and responsible stewardship kind of leading the way. And we have the opportunity to really mess this up in a big Mm. way (laughs) by centering, you know, business investors and profits. And, you know, it's, it's like we're at this choice point and, you know, are we ready to create something meaningfully different? Like, is the, is it, are we ready for that? Is Colorado like the one to sort of lead the way in that? And I, I really, there's something in me that believes our communities are like, we have this beautiful grassroots communities in the psychedelic spaces and we're strong and like, we, we're just so like centered and grounded in these medicines and there's so much integrity to hold it. And I think we can. And I also have like my really cynical jaded side of just like, oh, this is just going to be co-opted into a broken system and it's going to be a mess. And mm. <laughs> and maybe it'll just be a little bit of both, mm. a little from A and a little from B. And we just have to live with whatever the consequences are of that. Yeah. And from my end, it's, yeah, it's so interesting to hear we think about this differently in terms of because what we're interested in. From my end, I, I hope that people don't see psilocybin as a silver bullet. Yes. Like, okay, this this is going to heal my PTSD. This is going to replace all my psych meds. This is going to eliminate my need for weekly therapy. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trip on mushrooms and be healed. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I think this is a really valuable tool. And uh, there's so many potentially amazing uses. It's almost like, you know, a lot of people in Colorado have multiple pairs of skis. And I think of, you know, maybe like psilocybin is like your backcountry skis with edges, you know, and they're going to allow you to go places that your other skis won't. But you don't only want those skis. Like that would maybe be your fifth pair of skis, right. <laughs> or your sixth pair. But yeah. you're really glad you have them, you know. And so I'm, yeah, I am already, as, as I said, hearing from some pa- my patients yes. and thinking like, okay, now the silver bullet is here. This we is going to be the thing. This is right? the thing. I mean, there's just so much suffering. We're getting those calls too constantly, all the time, and it's like there's just it just shows to me that there's a lot of suffering and there's people who've tried everything and they're just looking. They're at the end of their rope and they're like they're looking for the thing that's gonna work that's going to be the thing that's going to end their suffering and they want to take five grams of mushrooms and then wake up and everything be different and that's a lot of the calls we get actually or that's what i feel you know the expectation is the build-up mm-hmm. um that they that that's that's and i that i i that concerns me because there's going to be plenty of people practitioners clinics who don't know any better and be like yeah okay sure let's and and it's going to lead to a disappointment and it's going to lead to destabilization for some people it's gonna 
it's it's yeah. challenging. We need to start low, go slow. Yeah. <laughs> start, maybe we can put billboards on I-25. Start low, <laughs> yeah, go I slow so, yeah. with mushrooms. <laughs> and we just have a lot of unpacking to do. Like we do so much preparation with people just on their expectations, especially when they're calling with that story. And, um, you know, I, I like to explore. I'm a meaning maker, you know, I'm not. I'm a social worker. I like to meaning and connection is like everything. And so they're really, I, I like to explore their relationship to their suffering and the stories they've been told about themselves from their therapists and from their doctors and from pill makers. And uh, they've <laughs> seen because <laughs> there's, and, and I like to really, I don't know. Um, it, it's, it's part of assessing that, that sense of readiness. And I'm not, I shouldn't be a gatekeeper for Silas. I'm like, who am I to gatekeep this? Like, I'm not an authority on it. And yet, there can be some like spiritual trauma also and other just types of harms when you, when the expectations aren't in alignment with the medicine and then it, and then with the person who's facilitating, it's just, there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot to steward. And so here, here we are at a big moment in our history and we get to, we get to create this together. Yeah. Well, I'm super excited that NOAC exists and that you're working on this, I'm working on this, and there's some great people in Colorado who are, yeah. I think, who have their hearts and minds in the right place to try to, yeah. to try to make this work. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining. Thanks for having this me. So, this is so great. Yes, we'll have to revisit this in uh, six months and see where we're at. <laughs> yeah, once the rules are out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's go, what are these rules? <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, well, thanks so much for coming. Thanks, Greg. Yeah. Shannon said, quote, The spirit of psilocybin is trying to pull us, our collective conscience, towards it, while we're trying to pull psilocybin into our battered psyches and broken systems. Will psilocybin transform us, or will we deaden the promise psilocybin holds for us? I love that. And I'm so dearly hoping for the former for psilocybin to nudge us towards more connection and compassion. The more we understand fungi and mycelial networks, we see that it's the fungi that rule the world. They really do. That they scaffold and nourish and make possible all our ecosystems and biosphere. I share Shannon's curiosity about what this one specific kind of mycelial network might do to us. In any case, very interesting times await. Stay tuned. Thank you.